0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin, talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff here to talk about in this episode include Gygaxian
1: Naturalism, The Utah War, From Mechanics to Story, and
0: Nixon Elvis Occultism. and Bobby would yell for seconds on fish, and thirds. His mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini Mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Good Night, Asathoth and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy two, get one free bundle of mini Mythos goodness.
1: Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children.
0: Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to
1: atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu,
0: the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems... wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of
1: miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive once more welcome us to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And today, the carpet is extra shaggy, the miniatures are extra thumpy, and the Doritos have extra chemicals on them because we are going back to the 1970s and maybe the very early 1980s into the heyday of what they call Gygaxian naturalism. Although I suppose I should mention that the old school Renaissance does believe uh, some of them in Gygaxian naturalism and is trying to recover it. But, ha, we are talking about Gygaxian naturalism in its original Beautiful state. Are we not? Or are you talking about the new movement, Robin?
0: You said in a previous episode the words Gygaxian naturalism. And I, and right. I thought, let's unpack what that phrase means.
1: Let's unpack it. All right. And, and so what can... you're doing is you're just letting me talk more.
0: Well, uh, seems like uh, a terrible I thought idea. this is something we could go into greater depth on. So, Ken,
1: yeah, uh, is,
0: is this your term?
1: No, this is a term, I believe, coined by the lovely and talented James Malashevsky on his seminal old-school Renaissance blog, uh, grognardia. And I believe that the Gygaxian naturalism is meant to imply the sort of, um, uh, fact that the monsters have full on ecologies and the sort of belief to build these, um, uh, th- these, uh, these monsters out with statistics and with weird little, I mean, if you remember in the, in the old dragon magazine, there used to be articles called the ecology of the mind flare and, and other nonsense topics. Uh, the ecology of the purple ooze. Yeah. Um, and so that's the sort of, I believe, uh, efflorescence of Gygaxian naturalism, but the Gygaxian natural concept is, uh, that contrasts a 13th Age, where the monsters are often presented as story elements first and beings second, that a Gygaxian naturalist world presents them as beings first and story elements second, or perhaps even not at all.
0: Right. Uh, so the idea is that you are entering a world, which is a simulation, and this is reflected in the fact that although it's a magical world, that we are taking a... Magic exists over here, yet these weirdo creatures, which may be magical or may be natural, fictional creatures which are not inherently magical, depending on how you define them.
1: Like dinosaurs?
0: Like dinosaurs, or even like, uh, you know, a, a Neo-Otyug. Is it inherently magical, or it doesn't exist, but right. is it an animal in an imaginary world, or is it a... Uh, Creature that uh, the wizards made by sticking two things together, like like a paraton, which,
1: which which comes to, uh, along the sort of I mean uh, taproot question of are orcs magical oozy creatures that were made by Saruman uh, or similar wizard type guy, or are they just a species like Neanderthals? And if they're a species, then there are ethical considerations. Maybe, uh, certainly for modern day gamers, as opposed to if they're just magical uh, creations designed uh, with pure evil in mind by Saruman, then you can just, you know, kill them all and uh, double take the hindmost.
0: Yes. In in certain iterations of the Warhammer world, uh, orcs are fungus. Right. um, Which implies that they have a a natural history.
1: (laughs) And that people are allergic to them. Yes.
0: And so uh, the idea then is uh, that you would go in a deep dive as a GM and that it was considered to be uh, a, a hallmark of great D&D running, that the world would all make sense uh, underneath the structure of adventurers uh, going to find and fight monsters and take their stuff and get experience points. And the question for me then of Gygaxian naturalism, of the idea that uh, you know a mind flare has an ecology as opposed to just a, a culture... Or uh, I don't know. Let, let's let's take the culture issue out. Right? Uh, a, a blood pudding has an ecology,
1: right? right. And yeah.
0: uh, that uh, you then have to uh, obey that ecology as you're setting up the artificial environment of the dungeon. So I guess the question is why? What is the appeal of this? And who is the appeal of this reaching? I think there's a, a big sort of closet drama appeal, certainly, of reading a big article that takes. A ludicrous monster that was thought up in, in two minutes and then, uh, developing it as if you're Richard Attenborough.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, the the boulette, uh, for example. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, here's, okay. Well, what blood pudding. Okay. What do blood puddings eat? Okay. Well, I guess they eat moss and what's their life cycle? Is there a larval form? You know, that that's a sort of a fun exercise unto itself. Um, and then I guess that, uh, either assumes that everybody in the, in the group back in the day read Dragon Magazine. So you all read mm-hmm. your Ecology of the Blood Pudding article, uh, and you knew what its life cycle was and everything. And then when you killed it, you went, Oh, what? And then afterwards, while you're sorting through, you know, the corpse to see if it's eaten any coins, then I guess your characters talk about its life cycle because uh my question i guess i'm being skeptical of greggy like, naturalism and you know remembering my uh you know i was a young uh, dm back in those days and trying to figure out a time when i ever worked any of that stuff actually into the game experience in, in a, a meaningful way i mean i guess there's
1: there's sort of two strands that it appeals to and the first is what what we've been talking about the sort of simulationist urge to say well i really want to know where boulettes came from, and I want to know if there are baby boulettes, and I want to know if they have a boulette graveyard where I can go and, and get their awesome armor and, and make a plate mail out well, of it without that having- that
0: suddenly turned into a story.
1: Kill a boulette. <laughs> yeah, but but that's what simulation does, right. right? If you, once you study the world, stories come out of it. That's my whole career is that. Yeah. Um, and then the other aspect of it is that you get a a monster that just has some nonsensical thing, like an Afrit can make food magically. Or a, a pixie can tell alignment, and so what that does is that for players who are really sort of loose tactical thinkers and like to, you know, uh, use every part of the of the monster. They're like, oh, it doesn't matter if we're trapped down here with no food. I'll just summon an afreet and tell it to make us some food. Or, oh, we really need to know if this guy's evil. We'll just capture him and drag him back to where we met that pixie and bribe the pixie. What do pixies eat? Oh, we know. Pixies eat lotus leaves. Let's give the pixie lotus leaves, and then the pixie will tell us whether this guy's evil or not. Because we don't have the spell yet. But we certainly have the ability to hit him on the head and kidnap him. And so that sort of using parts of the world for things that you might want to do other than immediately kill it and get its stuff is that, that sort of appeals to the, the super gamey or super tactical side in the same way that the simulationist appeals to the super traveloggy and super world building side. And so those two aspects together create that, that, well, that very Gygaxian urge to, um uh, to presenting D and D. And I think that's sort of what a lot of the OSR goes for is a world that is simultaneously, got rivets all the way around it, and that you can bang on each of those rivets and get a cool effect.
0: Right. And so, uh, to, to my mind, though, that that then uh, breaks you out of pure imaginary Richard Attenborough monster science yeah. into how do I, uh, because the, the exercise one is just how, how to make a blood pudding right. seem like it would be a real thing that would really exist. And, uh, and I think ultimately this all comes out of well, what do the monsters eat? when they're in the dungeon waiting for people to come and kill them and steal Mm their gold. And then that blossomed out into... Because if you're editing Dragon Magazine, there's nothing better than an article series that people really love, that your writers love to write, and that uh, you can read and feel like the world is deeper. Um, But uh, there's there's two different ways that you would go at uh, designing a blood pudding uh, ecology. One is, what is... What logically would this animal be in an ecosystem? And how do I, you know, make it all internally consistent with itself? And B, how can I create a rivet for someone to bang on to make fun come out when they actually play?
1: But it may not and have so, even been that you created it for fun. You created the rivet for the rivet's own sake. And then. Because you are then unleashing that into the game community, lots of people will bang on it in ways you've never anticipated. I mean, I'm sure that no one who wrote down that the Pixies can can tell alignment thought of this, but I'm also sure that a lot of people have done exactly what I described, even though my my gaming groups have never done it themselves, because like you, I think they were more narratively focused, or at least more treasure and eating focused than they were on um, uh, exploring the whole beautiful Darwinian universe of uh, Greyhawk.
0: So an ecology article, then, is an extrapolation onto which you, uh, the GM, are encouraged to build the final bit of extrapolation that turns it from raw simulation into, if not full-on story, because this is early d d but at least something that has narrative implications and has right. a plot
1: but again, I mean, that's, uh, that's not even the GM's job. Often it's the player's job. I mean, we all right. remember because we all were the player who memorized the monster manual. And so it's like, Oh, I know that this thing has, you know, um, uh, the ability to create potable water for some dumb reason. We're going to, you know, tie it to the ceiling and drown all those stupid kobolds. And, you know, there was, why would you do that? That seems odd, but it's cause I don't have to spend my magic charges, dummy. That's why. And, um, and so that's. Uh, that that sort of, you know, in-the-moment improv is part of, I think, what the original Gygaxian game was supposed to be about, is I'm presenting you with this puzzle, and if you come up with a way out of the puzzle that I didn't even know that I was presenting, that's extra bonus fun for everyone.
0: Right, so right? it's a world as a set of Lego blocks right. that have not yet been assembled, and that, that gives you, if you are of an extrapolated mindset along with all of the other players, the... Ability to take all of these things that have been thrown at you and try to assemble them into something, whether that is a, uh, as a player, a uh, clever that is hazy uh, way <laughs> to get past an, an obstacle, or for the GM, oh, here's a plot hook. Oh, look, if the, if the uh, bullet's armor beca- hardens after death, that implies that there's a, you can go find bullet armor and maybe you can do something with it. And so in both of those cases, the Gygaxian naturalism is a midway step a set of uh you know components that then you put together yourself and you have the sense of creativity for having found something actually actionable about the ecology of the blood pudding
1: right i think that in gigaxian fashion if we are reiterating our points with ever slighter variations we must either go do a new edition or maybe just a new segment Kids? Want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group?
0: Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role playing hobby? Gumshoe 1 to 1 has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe 1 to 1 book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard boiled detective fiction
1: with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos.
0: Complete with three dauntless investigators,
1: each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Chris Sating
0: journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman.
1: And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something
0: more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen.
1: The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun.
0: Our stovepipe hats and our daguerreotype stairs tell us that we've once more entered the old-timey precinct that is the History Hut. And this time we've been uh, summoned to the History Hut by patron backer Derek McMullen, who poses the following question. What was the real reason for the Utah War? What mythical thing was the government trying to hide? So, in fact, this is the secret History Hut. Uh, but let's start with the, uh, the overt History Hut. Uh, the Utah War uh, took place between uh, March 1857 and July of 1858. Uh, It was also known as the Mormon Rebellion. And it all started when James Buchanan decided to send federal troops to go and deal with uh, the uh, Mormons who had uh, moved on to Utah. They started out in the uh, oft-mentioned burned-over district. And uh, they got run out of there. They decided to go somewhere where nobody could come and mess with them. They'd go all the way to uh, a steer mid-continental Utah. But guess what? The, the feds came after them with, uh, with rifles and guns. There were a couple of issues in that. There was uh, plural marriage or polygamy, as uh, those outside of the sect called it. And of course, there's uh, a whole uh, issue of what Utah becoming a state would mean for slavery. So as you flesh out the uh, story as we know it of the Utah War, which of those strands do you want to grab onto first?
1: I mean, I think that, uh, we can sort of skip over the notion of uh, polygamy. Um, obviously that was w- the great propaganda hook for, uh, the people who wanted there to be a Utah war on both sides, actually. Uh, they'll never take our extra wives or we can't be having people having extra wives. The real thing that's going on is that Brigham Young, uh, was running Utah like it was his own territory and not part of the United States. He had no, sort of formal government position. He may have been, you know, granted the land, I guess, at some point, but he certainly wasn't the federal governor of the Utah territory. And they needed to establish some sort of indication that the Mormon church did not run all of Utah.
0: There might be something in the Constitution about that.
1: There might be. And so, uh, Governor Brigham Young was replaced, uh, as it transpired relatively informally. <laughs> by a guy named Alfred Cumming. Um Lots of other people uh said, yeah, you know what? I'd rather not go to Utah. But Alfred Cumming apparently had nothing else going on and said, sure, why not? I'll go to Utah. And so the the question sort of at the bottom of it is, who's going to run Utah? Is it going to be the Mormon Church or is it going to be the federal government, like the federal government is supposed to be running the whole rest of the country? Obviously, the larger question of should the federal government run the country became a bigger question shortly thereafter. But in this particular case, He ordered General Van Vliet, or Captain Van Vliet, rather, to uh, march up there and uh, set up the the army position in uh, Utah, and then was reinforced with uh, more troops. And the Mormons did not want to have an open scuffle with the federal government. The federal government did not want to murder a bunch of white settlers. So everyone was sort of, you know... Trying to annoy the living crap out of everyone without starting a battle. In the excitement, I guess you'd call it, uh, when people's blood is up, that's when a bunch of Gentile settlers are indeed ambushed and massacred by, uh, Mormons, uh, in the mountain meadows. And that's what I think almost everyone that died in the, in the Mormon war, the Utah war died of is the, is the mountain meadows massacre. There was also a few other individual skirmishes, but Pretty much, it was a bloodless invasion and eventually exercise of federal power because, again, push comes to shove. The Mormons did not want to turn into a guerrilla movement that would drive out um, uh, American occupiers. And the Americans certainly didn't want to start a war in Utah, of all places.
0: So, perhaps I'm tipping my own uh, biases here when I say it sounds kind of reasonable for... The uh, president not to want a theocracy in the middle of his country. That... It
1: does seem pretty reasonable to us, certainly. Probably less reasonable to the Utavians. But that's why you send troops. But,
0: but Derek uh, seems to suggest that there's a another reason, a, a higher, perhaps more metaphysical, mythic reason for them to uh, go in and uh, make sure that Brigham Young was not the uh, de facto governor of uh, Utah. So what was that? What
1: was that? That was... The necessity to take over the old stomping grounds of the Lemurians in Utah. If you remember, I believe we've discussed the giants that have been found uh, conveniently not by anthropologists or archaeologists.
0: They're no fun. They're not going to give the archaeologists and anthropologists will cover up giants any day of the week. Any day of the
1: week. It's their giant covering up. That's the third thing they learn at anthro school is cover up the Giants. Um, and I, we may even have mentioned the shadowy Smithsonian Institute that exists to hide all the Giants, perhaps operating under the rubric of the, Inst- of the Smithsonian Institution. But
0: because th- but they would have to rebuild the Smithsonian with much higher ceilings. Much higher ceilings and much wider um, uh, display cases. Yeah, can't do that. So... Uh, we, so we
1: know about all the giants that have been found in and around, uh, the Grand Canyon area and in caves across the West by prospectors and other doughty true Americans, uh, with just the Bible and a measuring stick to determine whether or not there are giants here. Um, these giants all, uh, come from a lost Lemurian settlement, which I believe is probably somewhere Either in Zion National Park or is on the other side of the Rainbow Bridge National Monument, the largest national bri- natural bridge in the world over Lake Powell. Obviously, where you've got a big stone arch, as we all know from Star Trek. At some point, there's going to be a, a roiling special effect in the middle of it, and you go through it, and you go <laughs> yeah. into the past. And that right. is the and past it's called of the Lemuria. Rainbow
0: Bridge. In case you were wondering if it had any mythic resonance. What? Yeah. What? What? What?
1: And so the, um, uh, Brigham Young was drawn to the Rainbow Bridge, uh, by, uh, the Angel Moroni. Probably the Leafites and the, and the Lamanites and then, and all those guys, uh, came out of that, uh, era. If you, if you remember the, um, uh, Mormon prehistory of America is far more, uh, sort of thrilling and exciting in the Old Testament sense than, uh, regular prehistory with lots of, uh, white tribes and people from, uh, Lost Atlantis and whatnot running around. So those guys, are in contact with Brigham Young through the Rainbow Bridge. And it is up to the American government, uh, President Buchanan, to close off the Lemurian supply line to to Brigham Young and make sure that if Lemurians are helping anyone, it'll be the feds.
0: Uh, So does that, in fact, result in a Lemurian alliance with America, or does it just close off the gate?
1: It closes off the gate because Lemurians, being giant white guys are uh, far more sympathetic to Mormons who believe in them than people who are in league with the hated Smithsonian Institute, which exists only to bury them underneath the regular institution.
0: Right. So they don't want to be secret.
1: No. They want they 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 are they're using Brigham Young and his um uh, and his uh, uh magical spectacles and golden tablets to disseminate Lemurian wisdom and they probably see the arrival of the United States cavalry as an uh sort of a a, a snub an imputation that perhaps their interests are not the best
0: so is this something that uh, that happened so thoroughly uh during the Utah war that the the, the gate was closed that basically um, aside from a few cognizanties such as yourself, no one knows about the Lemurians anymore, or is there still an active effort to uh, make sure that the Lemurians stay on their, their side of the gate? In other words, uh, is the Smithsonian Institute still working to uh, keep uh, Lemurians out, or is this basically just something where there's a remnant of the final climactic uh, victory?
1: I think there's an ongoing struggle. I think that you can't really pause at an awesome conspiracy like that and then say it ended in 1858. Where's well, the fun well, it depends there, on Rob? when
0: your game is set.
1: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, if your game is set in 1858, it's maybe. But if it's set now, um this is where your uh, St. Germain, who appeals who appears to uh, Guy Ballard on Mount Shasta. He's sneaking out from Lemuria. Uh, this is where the the Nordic aliens, so-called, uh, that appeared in Arizona to George Van Taskel and George Adamski came from. And that's the 50s? Uh, this was in the 50s and uh, late 40s. Uh, and so these, every now and again, the Lemurians are trying to poke through and see if we are more willing to listen to the simple wisdom of enormous Aryan giants from the past. And, uh... Probably, I don't want to say possibly, but I want to say maybe. Uh, the, uh, the Lemurians were, some of them were perhaps not as unfond of the Nazis as we would all hope primordial inhabitants of North America would be. I suspect that there are probably rogue Lemurians who were, uh, allied with the Nazis and probably got up to something in the thirties and forties. Right. This would be a different um,
0: bad crowd than, than Mitt Romney hangs out with. No, no, no.
1: Mitt Mitt hangs out with the good Mormons, the ones that are like, oh, absolutely, federal government all the way. Well, not just the
0: good Mormons, but the good giant Lemurians.
1: Oh, yeah, no, yeah. Mitt, Mitt Romney... To the extent the Lemurians are in contact with him, it is the good Lemurians who are merely trying to pass the secrets of fiscal stability uh, to us, as opposed to the secrets of integral uh, vibratory power.
0: Yes, I, I hear they have a pretty good healthcare program, too.
1: They, they, they It's all right. I mean, obviously, it could be improved. Uh, there's a lot of sniping by the Wendigo people who are all like, oh, well, we just eat flesh and it's all cool. But it's all right. It, it works for them. Let's just yeah, put it that
0: well, way. The, yeah, the, the Wendigo, if someone gets sick, they just eat them, as you point out. But the Lemurians, they have a, it's not exactly single pair, but it's a mixed, it's a system. mixed system.
1: You wouldn't understand it without vibrat- vibratory knowledge. Right. Let's just put it that way. Anyway, we've gotten far and far from sacred Utah. Um, possibly on purpose, but the uh, but but that I suspect was what James Buchanan was up to. And given that he closed off a dangerous gate, which might have admitted Lemurian invaders, I think we can cut him a little more of a break for letting the Civil War happen on his watch. Right,
0: and and presumably it was the, the 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 bad racist Lemurians who they had to close the gate against.
1: Well, I suppose those were probably the Lemurians that were in charge then, and then yeah. the Lemurians had their own. You know, political changeover, just like everybody does.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Yeah.
1: So if you're if you're looking for um, uh, there is uh, the legend of the sons of Dan, uh, some of whom may or may not have existed, uh, which was sort of a Mormon vigilante movement and turned out to be the bad guys in a lot of very exciting 19th century fiction, most of which is gone now. Uh, although you can still see it every now and again when people get head up about the Mormons for whatever reason, um, but uh, the, the, you can you can paint them as the as the uh, glove on the hand of the Lemurians, whether good or bad. Um, if you're looking for a modern day secret society that can sneak around and attempt to reopen gates and whatnot,
0: right? And so I guess that we have both good good and Nazi Lemurians. The the good Lemurians are probably realized now that they have to keep the gate shut.
1: That, that that's for the best right. because we are not ready. Bad ones.
0: And then, right. if your uh, storyline is beginning around this, obviously the bad guy Lemurians have uh, are coming up with a different way to get through the gate, and you have to stop them. And that that allows you to possibly ally with the with the good Lemurians, but you have the bad Lemurians as uh, as your primary antagonists.
1: Right. Um, that those are the guys you have to get through. Right. And those are the, are by and large the ones who go through the gate because they're rebels against the. So the the simply expressed will of not just the Lemurian High Council, but President James
0: Buchanan. right, And, and they're the ones who want all those skeletons to be found.
1: Right. They're, they're Because they're working against the Smithsonian Institute. So when you find a giant skeleton, it's also in your interest as an anti-Lemurian to keep it hidden, keep it safe. Right.
0: Uh, because otherwise, if you find a skeleton... Well, first of all, you might want to check and see if that's actually fossilized, right? Because if it's fresh... That's probably one of the good Lemurians that they bumped could, it off.
1: Yeah, he could have been whacked. Yeah, exactly. By his foes. And the whole
0: point is to get enough rubes to come and find enough skeletons to then go to the Rainbow Bridge and mm-hmm. open that up
1: again. Right. I, I think we are we are doing a beautiful CSI esoteric Lemurian crossover right now.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to go, to go on this. So I guess the uh, adventure starts off with the discovery of the uh, uh, the bones of it. it turns out to be a, a recent Lemurian, and then. Uh, and then it goes from there.
1: Yeah. Um, you, uh, you can have all manner of, of fun deep diving into the thing. I think where there's one time gate, you can have more. So if you want to go through a, a smaller time gate into, uh, the, the 1850s and, and see the Utah war playing out or into the 1880s and meet Doc Holliday and reveal to him the secret that he must carry to his grave. Uh, you can have all manner of fun. I mean, it's probably I an think, extra golden plate that you have to find. That uh, well, the Lost Dutchman Mine probably holds Lemurian treasure, right? I mean, you can take any legend. There is actually, I should say this: there is a Louis L'Amour novel called, I think, The Hidden Mesa, which is about a vibratory barrier to another world that <laughs> a Louis L'Amour character goes through, and so it's sort of a western, but also. An occult fantasy novel.
0: It's a little bit of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs in there. A little bit, a yeah. little bit.
1: Um, yeah, it's called The Haunted Mesa, and uh, I I suspect it was relatively late in Louis L'Amour's career that he wrote it, but uh, it's it you know it's Louis L'Amour, so it's great. I mean, it's super well written and and rackets along nicely, and it ties in with the Anasazi. So if you were looking, gosh, Ken, you've been in the Southwest talking about mysterious crap for a while. Where are the Anasazi? They're in Louis L'Amour. Go read it.
0: Uh, well, if anybody gets to Nerd Trope Louis L'Amour, it should be Louis Lemour.
1: It should be. I mean, or Max Brand, I guess, but he was dead. So there you go.
0: <laughs> uh, so we've got our whole uh, Weird Contemporary West campaign uh, uh, set up. And uh, we just have to start off with our uh, cowboy uh, bank robber characters, uh, as in hell and high water. And they can uh, uh, go on the lam. And instead of getting uh, uh, shot by the cops, they can, uh, they can stumble into the... Uh, a a cave, and there's the Lemurian skeleton, and uh, that changes everything.
1: Covered in solid gold goodies.
0: Oh, well, so we have not only an answer to Derek's question, but an entire campaign lined out uh, for everybody, so I think we can pronounce ourselves uh, victorious and move on to our mysterious next segment. What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds all fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF drive-through DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including
1: a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the
0: metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken, and in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as Fallen Gods, Rune Punk steam quests, Lamb Chop Love Songs, and the comic strip adventures of lazy, beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought
1: to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by
0: name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like Chris Leiden, Andrew Collins, Drew Scheel, Paul S. Ns, and Ethan James.
1: It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Steve K. asks Ken and Robin, Knowing that tabletop RPGs grew out of hobby wargaming, it's unsurprising that many of its most successful games are very gamified, with abstractions like hit points and initiative. Come on, Steve, get to the point. The recent trend has been towards story games that actively try and remove themselves from classic gamification. Steve, what is lost and gained in these two seemingly opposing styles, says Steve, saving it at the end with an actual question. Robin, what is lost <laughs> and gained in these two seemingly opposing styles?
0: Ken, are you chomping at the bit to, to question the premise or just the uh, the, the, the preamble? Uh, because I think we're going to say the usual Ken and Robin thing, uh, which is that Something would only be lost if for somehow uh, the new tradition uh, utterly destroyed the old tradition.
1: Or that the old tradition had uh, left the new tradition so uh, weak and reactionary that it couldn't actually do anything on its own. And neither of those is true.
0: Right. And so, uh, you know, Pathfinder and D&D and all of the heirs to that original uh, wave that came out of uh, Wargaming uh, still remain uh, alive and, and vital. Uh, and so... Uh, the only sense in which you can say that we've lost something by moving to a different style, just as the way that, uh, you know, what did we lose uh, when we went to Cubism from uh, post-Impressionism? Well, no one set all the post-Impressionistic paintings on fire. They still exist. And uh, the newer emphasis on story essentially plays to a different set of tastes, uh, which may, may be held by different people or may be held by the same people. At different times. Who in are different moods for things. looking for a different sense of variety.
1: Given that most of the restaurants on your block are Mexican, what is lost when a sushi place opens?
0: Right. Nothing. So, uh, I think it is a loss for you personally if you like one style and all of you members of your group all decide that they like another style better and you find it harder to get time in your group to do the thing you like. Although
1: virtually everything I've ever seen or heard online and in person has been the other way around that people are, I wish I could play some of these new exciting story games, but all my friends just want to play D and D. I almost never hear, I wish I could play Pathfinder, but all my friends want to play night witches. I I don't, I don't hear that ever, if at all. And even then a lot of my, uh, uh, elfie story game friends are always happy to throw down with some old school gaming of whatever sort. I mean, there are people who are super into very, very experimental games, but they're like, yeah, no, let's let's take out um uh, classic traveler. Uh let's let's see how that spins. Let's play that out. Um and maybe that's because there's uh airy dilettantes who can't settle on anything, but maybe it's just because adding more gaming does not destroy your taste for gaming any more than adding more movies destroys your taste for movies.
0: Uh, right. I, I did ha- once have someone tell me not to design a new game because it would make it harder to f- find people to play existing games. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: that's, that's, I think that's, that's more the lines of a compliment to Robin. Yeah.
0: That, that's, a, that's a data point of, of one. Um, and I think that person did eventually uh, buy Help folk and really like it. So there you go. It was a, it was a baseless fear all around. And so uh, I, I, yes, uh, what we could do instead of addressing the question as written is to talk about the ways that uh, the experiences are different and are different flavors of uh, of gaming that you can uh, choose to embrace on any given uh, night. There's certainly an argument. There are people who argue from the from the OSR crowd that there was a style of play that has gone away even within gamification, right? right so that yeah. it's not. Uh, The new D&D is
1: not like old D&D.
0: Right. So it's not that uh, they're both highly gamified, but that the way that you played those gamified uh, things went away until the OSR people brought it back. Uh, And then you can... uh, So I guess the the big argument there is that there was a more experiential way of imagining the D&D world back in the day, and that after people started realizing... That story could emerge from the uh, Gygaxian simulative structure, and started to try and focus more on that and make that happen rather than and waiting play for
1: towards it. story.
0: Yeah, R- rather than waiting for it to magically come about emergently, that the things that you start to do in order to make that happen aren't as vivid to uh, some people as as they are to others, and that if you go back and uh, and I guess sort of the one of the Examples is we used to spend a lot more time describing the process of tapping along with a ten foot pole, as you laboriously described lots of stuff. And and today, even in the D and D game, the the GM is more likely to sort of elide that. That once you've had that experience once of feeling creeped out by having to poke your way through a chamber, then they will do what a storyteller would do and go well. After three hours of elaborately poking your way down the chamber. You then open the door and there's orcs. And so there's more sort of cutting to the chase, which to some people is destructive to immersion. And
1: contrarily, or not contrarily, but in an allied uh, caveat or kvetch, uh, a lot of OSR people say that the focus on story leads to uh, too much character immunity because you can't really have as satisfying a story about the three first level guys who died. Um the story is better if it's the one first level guy who lives to become third level. Right. And so the old school methodology that grew out of the adversarial wargaming past of the hobby is that uh no one is safe and you walk into a dungeon and you might be killed by a ta- uh, by a trap you might be killed by a kobold you might be killed arbitrarily your spell might fail and blow you up a million ways to die in the dungeon. And so because we no longer have that because everyone is sort of tacitly saying, yeah, the story was really, you know, I've got plans and I want you to all investigate this thing. And either my world needs to be explored or your characters need to be explored. You can't do that exploration if literally anyone might step on a landmine at any time and die and be out of the story. So the sense of character immunity then leads to complacent play as opposed to a desperate inventive play, which is thought to have been the hallmark of play in the seventies. Now, having played both in the seventies and in now, I am not sure that there is, uh, there is some truth in what they say, but it is not as cut and dried as when I was playing D and D in the home set, it was fun. And when I play D and D now, it is, um, uh, an exercise in, um, uh, novel writing for my MFA. Uh, they're both fun and the fun, is super overlappy it's like orange and tangerine it's not even apple and orange
0: right because i think a lot of this is just finding a intellectual structure to justify your tastes so that if you uh just say well i i, I prefer uh an experience with a high death count where my i don't care so much about my character being a protagonist i want it to be more of a game piece that's uh a uh less of a call to action to other people to accommodate your needs or vice versa, right? If your argument is, uh, I don't like my character being in game piece. I want to know that he, he's going to live over the course of the whole thing and have a story. Uh, in if you come up with a intellectual justification for that, uh, that uh, you're trying to convince other people to show up at the game session to all agree that that's what you all like and do that together. And so, uh, I think the idea of uh, you know, styles of play displacing one another or being at war with one another is just sort of a, a way to kind of avoid a clearer discussion of what is it that I want to do at the table and not, you know, this is the ideal way to do it, but just this is the way I want to do it. Do you want to do it that way too? So you're saying it's it's basically just a sublimation of the
1: same argument you might have around the table all the time if you didn't establish some sort of common mythology that says, yeah, we're all going to treat characters as important or yeah, we're all going to play games that, uh, play to story because they're designed specifically to create story beats like drama system or we're going to, uh, or, or like gumshoe right. as opposed to we're going to put our characters in an exciting blend of orcs and murder and see what happens, uh, which is the other uh, side of things. And if you can establish a, a, a group culture around one or the other, then you don't have to have that fight. And so all of the fights on the internet are just sublimations of the fights you would be having with your fellow friends and players. If you thought that you could win it.
0: Right. And, and they're just fights on the internet, right? If, you, if right. you're yeah, just right. saying the
1: internet is just a place to fight,
0: right? If, if you're, or, or rather you have to construct an ideology in order to have an argument that goes beyond two posts, because <laughs> oh, if you're yes.
1: God forbid, someone should say everything they need to say in two posts and then keep posting.
0: Yeah. If, <laughs> yeah. If, if you just say, well, I kind of like this better. That's, Not an argument, but if you want to construct a thing that I am right about gaming, uh, then that's where your argument that, you know, we lost something when this other option came along that didn't destroy the other option. That's that's where that uh, comes in, I think.
1: Or that those other people were all playing everything wrong and only we are using the medium to its fullest and truest extent. Uh, right. The other side of that idiot coin. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's all it's all fun. People, we're all having fun. Everything is gamified because you're playing a game. Uh, note, uh, everything is is a story because people create story even when there is no story, and everything is uh, a fantasy world because that's what you're doing. You're if you wanted to live in the regular world, you'd be off playing street hockey or something. Right,
0: and, and if you had a great experience playing when you started. Uh, and if you didn't have a great experience, you probably didn't continue. And therefore you're not a listener to this podcast. Yes.
1: It, well, and if you are, I salute you.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> um, or man, it may have been, <laughs> yeah, maybe the power of the medium kept you going until they finally did. But, uh, you know, your early great experiences are inevitably going to sort of be your, or, er, uh, experience around which you uh, define everything
1: in, in the same way that the science fiction you read when you were 13 is the science fiction you kind of want to read even when you're 51 and right. know that you know there's other stuff out there
0: and it used to be that you could assume sort of a, a when there was one generation of gamers even like you know 20 years after that you could all kind of assume that everybody started playing with the 10-foot pole that they were you know that was a really vivid description of your tapping your way down the corridor and encountering each Individual thing that you found in the environment, and you all remembered, you know, that experience. Well, you know, these days, well, somebody else who you may be uh, playing a game with at a convention started with the monster hearts, and right. somebody else started with dread, and you know, uh, th- that first experience was nothing like the person next to them who had the first experience of playing a rat catcher in Warhammer Fantasy <laughs> or you know, even people, uh, you know, and I guess this is also part of where edition wars come in, you know. Even people who played the three different versions of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay had radically different first experiences of of that game. So I think there's also in that question a yearning for an idea of a shared unitary experience that we can all uh, recall uh, when things have gone uh, um, off in all directions. And the uh, shared assumptions that you have with everybody that you sit down at the gaming table with uh, are... Uh, gone. So you could argue that that's something that was lost uh, in the great uh, speciation of gaming. Yeah, there's there's no longer uh, an assumption that you can make about a, a vast uh, shared experience. But um, you know that too has, of course, the upside of someone can come in and completely surprise you with their. Uh, approach that has nothing to do with 10 foot poles.
1: Yeah. And and I think because the hobby is collaborative by definition, there is a maybe a larger d- desire to create imagined communities and 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 these bodies uh, I I suspect there aren't addition wars in in chess, right? Um <laughs> well,
0: but there's a big addition war when the king uh, gained the ability to to zip across the no no the queen when the queen suddenly uh, could move across the board. Uh Which is what made chess interesting, yeah, and a lot of people objected to that because <laughs> the point of chess until then was not to win but to while away the hours in your medieval castle
1: and once you're in a and once you're in a, an enlightenment castle the right. whole the whole system goes to heck right um,
0: so, so so that's what was lost in chess when the, yeah. the queen gained power
1: right the well there we are, you're touching on being on the nose there, Robin need to back off that. Right. Anyway, but I, I think that the, the notion of, of a community around the table creates the notion that there should be a community around the, the hobby. And when, as happens, uh people want different things or do different things, you maybe take it a little more personally than you do restaurants. You're, you're you know, right. you maybe you eat meals together, but it doesn't, you're not like, my enjoyment of the Italian food has been damaged by someone else enjoying tacos. That is not usually the response of of, of normal people. But in a, in a game that is literally built on everyone agreeing what to play, agreeing on the rules to play it by, and usually agreeing on the invisible social contract at that table, the notion that we all have to have a community that agrees is hardwired into participants in a way that it isn't in lacrosse or something.
0: Although the, the penalties for developing a variant rule to lacrosse in mid-game are, are even greater, I would argue.
1: Yeah, you get you get a stick across the back of your head.
0: Yes. Uh, lacrosse is a game where you used to get killed. Um, so... Traditionally, when we begin talking about lacrosse, that is our signal... To move to another segment. <laughs> The skies are dim always since the Maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted
1: world. In John Scott Tynes' Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of punch- the Maker Killer.
0: You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets.
1: Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games.
0: Featuring full-color paintings
1: from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height.
0: Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. It's time to once again wend our way up the creaky stairs, uh, kick away at those cobwebs, wave hello to the glowering portrait of Madame Lubotsky, who does not unglower That's her thing. She glowers. And move on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist, who's there in his smoking jacket. Oh, wait! He's not wearing a smoking jacket. He's wearing a a white jumpsuit with big collars and rhinestones. And he's got a a smoking jacket. Yes. (laughs) Uh, he's got a, there's a hunk of hunk of burning consulting occultist because, uh, Wayne Rossi, Patreon backer, Wayne Rossi, uh, wants us to reveal the occult underpinnings of the Nixon Elvis meeting. Uh, now Ken, in our uh, live in London episode, we revealed Mm -hmm. that the magic of the Nixon era was, Deeply steeped in the world of golf. Yes. So our first question to ask is, uh, what was Elvis's connection to golf? And, of course, when you search that, uh, you come up with a publicity photo of him posing with uh, golf uh, then legend Gary Player, uh, who they were screen testing for a possible film career. Uh, The list of uh, crossovers between uh, golf stardom and movie stardom remains at zero. Um, and also, we have to question a golf player named Gary Player. Clearly, yeah, that's a little on the new, on the nose. Clearly, <laughs> a tulpa. So yes. we know that Elvis was being groomed as early as the early '60s for uh, what would be uh, his investiture of magical uh, power. We know that uh, we can further say that Elvis, of course, is from Memphis, as David Byrne says, home of Elvis and the ancient Greeks. Uh, therefore. Uh, has all of the power of uh, of Egypt uh, behind them. Uh, Elvis is also a, a Promethean figure. Uh, Sam Phillips of Sun Records realized that he would have a star on his hands if he could just find a white boy who could sing like his black recording artists. And so Elvis stole the fire of R&B and turned it into uh, rock and roll. We know he's a figure. It's also a priapic figure famed for the hip swiveling that uh, dared not be shown uh, below the waist on The Ed Sullivan Show. So, Elvis is uh, full of magic. Oh, yeah. And also has uh, properties of resurrection, uh, as, as evidenced in the 1968 comeback special. Yes. Uh, so, we've got and all...
1: And by the fact that he has been seen by many faithful uh, disciples since his exactly. alleged death.
0: Yes, he's, he's had more than one comeback. Uh, and so, uh, we we know that there's a lot of magical energy forming and coalescing and swirling about. Uh, And so for those of us who uh, have suspicious minds, we know that there must have been some great uh, portent to his uh, meeting with Nixon. So what can you reveal about that?
1: First of all, it is, in fact, the most requested thing from the National Archives is a copy of that photograph. More than the Bill of Rights, more than the Constitution, more than the Declaration, more than anything else in the National Archives, people want the photo of Nixon and Presley. And so... What you're, what you got there, I suspect, is somewhat like the tauroctony, uh, that is the image, uh, in all, uh, Mithraeums. The, the central mystery of, uh, of our, of our time is solved not by the killing of a cosmic bull, but by Nixon and Elvis shaking hands. And, uh, the, this, uh, spread of the image is by itself a part of the work that Nixon did by, taking this Promethean spirit and taming him to the extent that Richard Nixon could.
0: And, and Elvis, of course, it had to be tamed and retamed at numerous points. Yes, his he he was, be... Well, he's a
1: Promethean, as you yeah. say, or even Protean. Yeah, he had to um, be
0: put in the army and then he had to be put in a series of uh, increasingly inane uh, Hollywood films and then uh, and then uh, Nixon had to go to work on it.
1: Right. And uh, Elvis arrives in, in Washington, D.C., and he wants a Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs badge so that he can go undercover and fight the drug problem from within. <laughs> and Eagle Krogh, who was uh, the deputy counsel of the White House, uh, was an Elvis fan and thought that it would be a good publicity thing for the president to shake hands with Elvis. And so, therefore, sure, give him a badge. What can it hurt? But, of course... Well, you know, first of all, uh, we we're talking about Gary Player being a suspicious name. A guy named Eagle Krog is involved in this story. Tell me more. The
0: Nixon administration still has all the best names. Yeah, uh, there's always some great names in a in a big political scandal. But the some other thing may come around and eclipse Watergate. But just for sheer great names, from Ehrlichman and Haldeman uh, to B.B. Rebozo on down, the, the Nixon. Just to have the best names around him. Yeah. <laughs> which I'm sure, given this context, had to be Kabbalah, right?
1: It's not Kabbalah, it's Runic. Because uh, Eagle comes from the Norse. Uh, the original is uh, Egalage, which is a uh, the name of an archer. Um, uh, so the uh, Eagle is perhaps channeling this uh, this Runic power and the, the Runic archer. Um, there, there's a saga about a guy named uh, eagle who looks after thor's goats while the gods and the giants are meeting so obviously there's a connection there he's the guy who holds the goats during the meeting eagle is the guy who sets up the meeting and holds literally elvis's two associates jerry Schilling and um uh, his bodyguard uh, what's his name? Ba bah Sonny West, and so uh, Schilling and West are the titular goats in this uh, re re reenactment of the myth of of Agil, and so Agil is holding Elvis's goats. Elvis is brought in. He's Thor. He's in to meet the ice giant, uh, Richard Nixon, right. uh, the, the, the cunning conspirator who lurks at those corners of the world and is, uh, getting it on and who wants to trap Thor slash Elvis in the bands of ice that are symbolized by the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs badge. Now, there are people who speculate that what Elvis just wanted was to be able to carry drugs on an airplane. <laughs> and so that's, that, that's a mere cover. that is the sort of, hateful rumor mongering that has plagued the king his whole life and i won't stand for it uh elvis just be be an elvis and he thought you know what the heck let's fight communism and let's fight it on the drug front where i know i can make a difference right he can reduce the number of drugs in the world i i it, and and uh and you know be in a be a role model for the kids
0: right and so this reveals that the the latter day hymn of elvis transcendent which is uh um, Mojo Nixon's Elvis is everywhere. Exactly. It has been slightly occulted because what it really means is Elvis needs goats. Elvis right. needs goats.
1: Elvis needs, Elvis, 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 Elvis needs goats.
0: So, uh, I, I think that the truth is sufficiently transcendent. Uh, have we missed any footnotes?
1: Um, uh, he gets a, uh, a letter from J Edgar Hoover. But, uh, did not meet him. And I think that that is one of those things where Elvis, in this case, maybe the wise fool, he's, he, he, he wants to meet Hoover. Hoover won't meet him. Uh, if Hoover had met him, uh, who knows what, uh, further toils, uh, the king could have been drawn into. Because obviously if, uh, Nixon is, uh, the, the, the ice giants, uh, Hoover is Loki, right? He's, he's there sneaking around, dressing up as a girl, just like Loki, um, up to, up to all manner of, of, of things. But, Important to defend the gods when the chips are down. So that's why you got to keep J. Edgar Loki around. So, uh, uh, as you say, it's, it's one of uh, many tamings of Elvis. And I think that we can leave the question of, uh, Elvis's badge and its potential occultic significance, uh, maybe for your unknown armies game or for other activities that might happen later on
0: well if we're moving on to other activities let us uh, conclude this installment of our podcast and we'll be, be back for another exciting go round same time same channel stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games palgrain press Ask Arc Dream, torque tower and pro fantasy software
1: music as always is by james semple
0: audio editing
1: by rob borges Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Hang with such hunk hunka burning pals as
1: Joshua Hillerup, James Pearson, Isaac Priestley, Linda and Mike Schiffer, and Phil Masters.
0: Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise.
1: At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at
1: Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.